Some words from our first Bible reading from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 64, verse 7. Lord, no one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Today's Old Testament uh, reading from that prophecy of Isaiah, those words in particular leap the centuries remarkably well because its sentiments are ones which are frequently repeated in our own time. Things aren't what they used to be. No one calls on God's name anymore. People have lost faith. They can't be bothered with religion that they expect to lead happy lives. That's the spirit of this long lament, and uh, it's simply part, of course, of a much longer lament in Isaiah. And, of course, it contains a plaintive cry at the very beginning of chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Why doesn't God do something? God hasn't spoken for generations, since ancient times. The life of faith has slowed down. That's the lament. Well, that might not seem like a very cheerful place to start, um, but it is Advent Sunday, so don't expect too much from the bishop. The traditional Advent themes are death and judgment and hell. Um, (laughs) But actually, Isaiah's prophecy is not all bleak. Um, There's hope, huge amount of hope, as well as frustration there. We're we're going back, we reckon this part of Isaiah was written somewhere between 540 and 520 BC in Jerusalem. And the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem is really on the cards. But there's a chronic lack of progress with the restoration fund. Building a new temple, it's feasible, it's uh, politically possible, but there's no new dawn in Israel's religious life. Things are flagging. And uh, God doesn't seem to be crowning these new possibilities with any spectacular intervention. Compared with the glories of the past, The people of Jerusalem seem to be living in an age of spiritual desolation. They want God to do a new thing. There's no doubt about that. They want God to do a new thing. Yet they feel themselves to be stuck in a spiritual cul-de-sac. It's hard not to feel that there's some comparison between that and the spirit of many Christians throughout Western Europe at the present time. So it's no surprise to me that this reading from Isaiah has been chosen by the whole church as the very first reading on Advent Sunday. I mean, today we begin uh, a new year in the life of the church. This is uh, the church's New Year's Day. But the church's year never begins with parties. It's the interesting thing as to what the church has done with its year. It begins with a period of quiet reflection, of penance, of waiting, 
of thinking about God's coming kingdom. God's kingdom will come. But we are in a long pause, almost 2,000 years now and counting. We know God hasn't done with us yet, and there's more to come. But where is he? Why doesn't Christ come again? Now, in the Christian faith that you and I hold, two things are true at the same time. Jesus Christ has come. He is alive and he's with us now. But we are also still waiting for him. We're waiting for his return. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And Christians, all of us live in this in-between time. And Jesus tells us not to try to work out the day or the hour. There's a purpose to this in-between time. But we don't know quite what it is. That's the frustration. Even after Christ has come and God has done a new thing, we fluctuate between hope and frustration. And perhaps what God really wants of us is to slow down, attend to him, be more silent and wait. That's what Advent is about. But we don't much like shutting up. So that's why we ignore Advent and pretend Christmas is already here. It is the most neglected season of all, in church and outside, in cathedrals and in parish churches. The carol services will begin next week in Norwich Cathedral and continue almost every night until Christmas Day. You take off your Advent vestments and imagine Jesus is already born among us, which of course he is. And so we're actually living all the time between these two things. Perhaps we ought to be silent. Well, silence isn't a promising theme for a sermon, um, but a sermon might remind both the preacher and the congregation how dangerous words are. The truth of course, is often obscured by noise. The cacophony of sound in our world easily throws us off course and disturbs our moral and spiritual bearings. Remember, it was trumpets and shouts which destroyed Jericho. Think how in the modern city, in this one, it's noise which is destructive. The noise of aeroplanes overhead or rock drills digging up our streets let alone the sound of traffic, the background noise of music in stores and cafes. And to block it all out, what do we do? We put on earphones and listen to iPods. Well, actually, I don't, but um, (laughs) I've noticed lots of other people do who are younger than... Well, actually, they're not all younger than me. And some have wondered whether the sheer noise of modern life has actually contributed to a decline in our collective mental health. And as Michael Stancliffe pointed out some years ago, it's not even machines which are the worst offenders. It's the sounds which come from our own mouths, which have done a great deal to destroy people and communities. Let's remember what brought to an end those who were building the Tower of Babel. 
Let's think of the noise of the crowd braying for the crucifixion of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Think of the screeching and the shouting which some of you may just remember. The screeching and the shouting of Adolf Hitler before the crowds in Nazi Germany. It was not the voice of sweet reason or quiet persuasion, but the cacophony of demotic power which led to the death of millions of our fellow men and women in the Second World War. Slow down. Be quiet. Listen to God. Attend to him. Christ is coming again. God's purposes have not been defeated. That's the Advent message. So let's pause and listen to what God may be saying to the way in which we live. Slow down and be silent. We don't like things which are slow. Minds the generation weaned on fast food and instant coffee. Real coffee has made a comeback, but only because we can deliver it quick nowadays. Somewhere at home, I've not, I can't think where it is, but somewhere at home in the back of a cupboard, we have a coffee percolator, which was an essential item on a wedding list when we got married in 1978. I can remember it being written there. And it would still make excellent coffee if we had the patience to wait half an hour for it to gurgle away and do it. And we haven't got the patience. And does this longing for speed do us any good? Well, we were the generation, were we not, addicted to the quick return on capital, and look where that got us. We are the generation of instant communication. I'm part of it. Through the internet, email, texting, and twittering. Not actually part of Twittering. I don't really know what Twitter is, but I, know, I just wanted to show I'm in touch. And uh, we have successive governments legislating like fury, never faster. It's unbelievable the amount of legislation going through Parliament at the present time. We respond to every itch in society by rubbing it with a new law, and we seek to correct every flaw in human behavior with a new regulation. And it creates frenzy and instability, and it's the result of impatience and a longing for things to happen quickly. Almost every organization has a rapid response unit, or something of the kind, to show how quick they are to put whatever is wrong right. No one dares set up a slow response unit. <laughs> but the reflection and thought that might go into it, I'll guarantee would yield better results in the longer term. We've made speed of all kinds a yardstick of virtue. Why? Jesus was never a man in a rush. Never a man in a rush. He waits, remember, almost 30 years in obscurity in Nazareth before even beginning his brief public ministry. 
He's in no rush then, as far as we can see, even though there's so much to be done. He leaves crowds who want him to heal. He leaves them to go off to lonely places to pray. He hangs around in the Garden of Gethsemane, calm, it seems, before his arrest. He's entirely silent before those braying crowds calling for Pontius Pilate to crucify him. If you see everything in the context of eternity, you slow down and keep silent. But how can silence speak? How did Jesus speak through his silence? Because silent he was very often. I mentioned Michael Stancliffe um, earlier in this sermon. He was Dean of Winchester many years ago now and preached wonderful, elegant, scriptural, literary sermons which people thought came easily. They took him hours of preparation. And I heard him once begin a sermon with quite a long quotation from one of Thomas Hardy's novels, And I'd always loved um, Thomas Hardy, still do, even though he can be a bit bleak as a writer. And uh, I've noticed his work seems to me less read than it was because, of course, it's laden with biblical references. And people do not understand him so well. But Michael Stancliffe began this sermon by quoting from Under the Greenwood Tree, not one of Hardy's most famous novels. And he began with a conversation between two country people about a third, a third person called Geoffrey Day. And it went like this. Geoffrey Day is a clever man, if ever there was one. Never says anything, not he. Never. You might live with that man a hundred years and never know there was anything in him. Aye. One of those up-country London ink bottle chaps would call Geoffrey a fool. Silent? Ah, he is silent. He can keep silence well. That man's silence is wonderful to listen to. There's so much sense in it. Every moment of it is brimming over with sound understanding. What could be more different from our own age? Yet we know in Ecclesiastes... The preacher says, and remember it's the preacher in Ecclesiastes who says in 3, 1 and 7, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. And then in that great letter of St. James in 119, be swift to hear, slow to speak. Slow to speak. Now, not all silence is creative and rich, so don't get me wrong. Um, Think of the silence of an elderly person's house which no one else ever enters, or the, the silence of the tomb, or the bitter silence between a married couple who've fallen out of love and have nothing to say to each other any longer. There are silences which threaten, which threaten. But so much of what we say threatens too. 
Think of the arguments of the new atheists desperate to prove by their words that God doesn't exist. Think of those evangelists on American television stations which I now watch sometimes with my digital receiver, haranguing crowds, demonstrating in all humility why their beliefs are true and their practices right. And it seems almost without exception doing so very loudly indeed with a noise that's a rarity in the Gospels. A rarity, though Jesus, remember, of course, could have and express righteous indignation. What we don't often possess is faith in the power of silence. We don't really believe St. James when he tells us to be slow to speak and swift to hear. There's a devil of argument in us, which is why I suspect we find it so hard to emulate the silence of Jesus before the braying crowds. But at Advent, if we did but observe it, we have an annual counter to the jabbering tragedy of the human condition. So Advent begins the church's year by suggesting we be quiet, reflect, listen to God. To hear him, we need to be silent and wait on him. Slow down. Stop proving ourselves. How was Geoffrey Day's silence wonderful to listen to? How was it brimming over with understanding? Perhaps it was that he didn't impose himself on other people. He'd learned to receive. He lived alongside his fellow men and women, accepting them. Perhaps it was that he entered their hearts and minds and identified with them, so that even without words, they came to know that he knew them. Isn't that what Jesus Christ has done for us? Isn't that what his incarnation is all about? Is it simply his words we rely upon? Or is it Jesus Christ living with us, within us, among us, so often silently, but still the presence which means we learn and understand so much from him? That's why we gather. That's why we pray. Because Jesus Christ is with us, the unseen presence, the incarnate Lord. Slow down and be silent. Listen to God. Discover Jesus Christ. And glory in the God who made you, the God who goes in for long pauses, allowing us to discover him. No wonder Isaiah then says in praise, O Lord you are the father, we are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. In the name of that same God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.